Welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing, relations, evangelism, and advocacy. I'm Stathis Jorakopoulos, and I'm your host. In each episode, I welcome a guest from the developer marketing world. We talk about best practices, challenges, lessons learned, and share insights, data, and experiences to help you boost your devrel game, talk to, and engage with developers. This podcast is brought to you by Slash Data, the leading analyst of the developer economy, and devrelx.com, a hub devoted to providing resources for developer marketing professionals, including developer ecosystem trends, news and job openings, webinars, a book, and a bi-weekly digest you can subscribe to. Access them all at devrelx.com. Welcome to our new episode. Today, we're back with our Master Tip series. In the Master Tip series, we share with you tips and best practices from panel discussions we put together with industry leaders at the Future Developer Summit, DevRel the next day, from tactics to strategy. This is the theme of today's episode, featuring Alice Pivak, the Senior Director of Developer Relations at Okta, Daniel Bernardi, Staff Platform Growth and Developer Relations at Twitter, Chris Castle, the Director of Developer Advocacy at Salesforce, and hosted by Andreas Kustandinu, who is the CEO and founder of Slash Data. More panel discussions and sessions from the latest Future Developer Summit and the previous ones are available at futuredeveloper.io, as well as more information for the upcoming events. That's what I had for housekeeping and introductions. So I'd like now to introduce our panel. And we have three panelists which will join the stage. Uh, if I can ask them to turn on the, then their videos. So please give a warm welcome to Ali. Daniela and Chris, virtual hand clap here. So I will uh, mention their names, do very, very quick intro, and then I will ask each one of them to introduce themselves. So Ali Spivak is Senior Director of Developer Relations at Okta. Daniela Bernardi is responsible for staff platform growth, developer relations at Twitter. And Chris Castle is Director of Developer Advocacy at Salesforce. I'll be the moderator and I'll be looking at the questions you ask and firing those at our panelists. And so um, Ali, Danielle and Chris, can I ask uh, each of you for a quick intro and most importantly, a fun fact about you so we can get to know you a bit better. Let's start with Ali. Thanks, Andreas. Uh, so hello, I'm Ali Spivak. Uh, I'm currently Senior Director of DevRel at Ecta. Uh, and before that, uh, I was at Mozilla, leading MDN, among many other things. I've been a developer for, well, I probably don't even want to admit how long, but pretty much about 20 years now, although I don't write as much code now as I used to. Fun fact about me, uh, I can't sit still. In the pandemic, I have moved five times, bought a house, sold a house, and change states. So uh, I think I'm one of those DevRel folks who you don't give me an airplane to get on, I got to find something else to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm not good at that. Force of habit. <laughs> Force of habit. Thank you, Ali. Daniele? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Daniele, um, leading the consumer developer efforts for uh, our developer platform. Just like Ali said, also been a developer for pretty much all my life. Just like Ali, don't code that much, but I do code when it's needed. Uh, like last week, we had Hack Week, and uh, I coded, and it was amazing. Fun fact about myself, I don't know, during this, the past 12 months, this apartment has been filling up with weird things. One thing that I happen to have, Taylor Swift bracelets for some reason. I'm not even 
a Taylor Swift fan much, so I don't know why, but that's what's happening. <laughs> Thank you, Daniele and Chris. Uh, good evening, I think, to you, Andreas. Good evening, good morning, good, morning, good afternoon Chris. to everybody out there. Uh, my name is Chris Castle. I'm a director of developer advocacy at Salesforce. Uh, started with focusing mostly on Heroku. Um, and some of you may know, some of you may not know that Heroku is uh, part of Salesforce, part of the Salesforce platform. Um, I've been a product manager, a developer, um, a data analyst, economic consultant. I've done all sorts of stuff. I've been a, a ski patroller, um, avalanche safety instructor, and um, kind of all of those came together. And I've found myself in developer relations now. I um, Fun fact about me is that my first job was as a bike mechanic. Um, I lived in um, the Northeast US. Started working in the back room, collapsing cardboard, and slowly made my way up to being a bike mechanic and even, even did a little bit of sales. This is bicycle, not motorcycle, although I do like all two-wheeled vehicles. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me and all of us on here. So um, I had a bit of a camera issue just now. I think it's working now. We see you. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, and so our topic for today, strategies uh, versus tactics. I want to start with the tactics. And uh, my first question to everyone, and you can um, maybe start with Ali, is do you have a superpower, like something you use and you've become really good at and something you kind of have been honing your skills in all these years in DevRel? Uh, that's a tricky question. <laughs> I don't say it's a, think it's a superpower per se, um, but I do think, especially being in DevRel, like the cross-functional collaboration, I think is probably one of the key, I don't know if it's a tactic or a strategy or just a personal, sort of personal superpower per se, um, but being able to get groups across the company together to have kind of real conversation. I think maybe that might be my superpower. My friends have joked around that, you know, I need one of those candles, like Our Lady of the Difficult Conversations. So maybe that's my superpower. But I do think being able to pull groups together to have conversations about what's working, what's not working, um, and sort of feed information from my team, from developers, what we're hearing, um, back into the org and then be able to take the feedback from the org as well and synthesize all of that. Um, sort of driving those conversations, I think, is kind of key, like the key power of sort of that DevRel leadership role that you find yourself in. I, I saw Chris nodding, so I can I might hand over to him to <laughs> let him yeah. finish his superpower. No, I think that's super important. The bringing people together and difficult conversations is important in any role, but but especially I think in DevRel being a new kind of a new-ish business function and a requiring more soft skills than maybe maybe some other other roles. Yeah, I'd say my <clears throat> my superpower in this area at least stems from or comes from um, my role as a product manager, in that I um, I really enjoy 
I'm working with a group of people to create create really polished, nice product demos or, or demo app applications in general. So it kind of combines a little bit of coding and, and product management and working together with a team. But going back on kind of one of Ali's points, I think the <laughs> the superpower that we all want or all should want to have is how, how do we make our team stronger? Uh, DevRel in general has a you know, uh, uh, or developer advocates or developer evangelists kind of have this, like, um, there are these celebrities that exist in in the industry. And those are great and valuable to, to, to businesses. Um, and it's fun for the people involved, but making kind of everybody on your team as powerful as possible and, and not just kind of focusing on that individual celebritydom, celebritydom is, uh, is something I, I hope I do well at and I'm, and I'm trying to do better at these days. I totally agree with that uh, as well. It's a good segue on uh, what the superpowers are. Um, I think our superpowers is the ability to communicate regardless of the media and the channel. Like we, even at the end of last year, we tried things like you know more video uh, form content, YouTube, Twitch, or uh, our own videos posted on um, the Twitter Dev uh, handle. But you know, there's also a good opportunity now with uh, Spaces and. Uh, the more like audio form communication and obviously there's mm-hmm. always the text based communication and so try to reach developers where they are and um, with the media they feel more comfortable to begin with um, will be um, one of the good things to uh, to really optimize for as we have you know developer advocates that are more capable and just like natural as at um, working with video form of content I personally myself feel more comfortable with uh, audio form content. And so that's the opportunity there to reach other developers that are like-minded that maybe don't want to appear, but they want to share their ideas and, uh, and do that. That's a nice tactic that can allow us to uh, do two things at the same time. One, reach out into like, new uh, channels that are trending and growing. And second, getting the attention of more developers where we uh, wouldn't be able to in the past. Um, looking at the the topic of tactics for now, just want to do another round. Ali, you moved from Mozilla to Okta fairly recently, and I wanted to ask: like, is there something that Okta can learn from Mozilla? Is there some like something in your Mozilla arsenal, like things you you use to engage developers that I think you know you're, you're using now? You think Okta can learn from? Well, I mean, obviously, Okta thought there was something. Uh, because I, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a couple pieces. I mean, Mozilla's incredibly strong open source and community background, I think, are an area that kind of any company that sort of has more operated in the enterprise space um, is looking to have some experience. I know that that was one of the things that was really interesting. Um, I also think it's just sort of a breadth of background for me, you know, I kind of like Chris, you know, I've done, you know, I started out as a web developer and then, I've, but I've done product management, I've done program management, I've, you know, managed teams doing marketing, I managed teams doing engineering. So I think sort of that breadth is also something that I bring in. Um, but I, I do think re- realistically, like the, the open source and community background that I brought from Mozilla is really kind of a key piece that I'm bringing into the mix um, at Octa and sort of thinking broadly. What, what, do you, what do you think Mozilla does really well? Wow. 
there's a lot of great things. Uh, you know, the the community piece, I think, has been huge. I mean, obviously, for me personally, it's documentation. Uh, you know, I was responsible for MDN, which is kind of Mozilla's platform docu- web platform documentation site, uh, which is an amazing, incredible resource. Um, you know, probably the, the highlight of my career so far is being involved with MDN. Um, so I think that that focus on not just creating great documentation, but sort of community-led documentation has probably been a huge was a huge strength for Mozilla. But that sort of I think Mozilla's strength has always been kind of that world-minded. So looking sort of for the good of the internet, and and and, and that has carried through and given a huge amount of goodwill to the company. And so I think all companies that are successful strike a chord with their users or with sort of the broader community that they're reaching for, you know, you know, you meet a need, but a product, there's more than just a product. I think it's, it's really striking that chord of, of a need. I'm getting out of tactics and more into strategy, but um, I, you know, and I think, you know, that people want to be connected to something um, and Mozilla has always sort of been able to connect their community to something greater than just we're creating a product. Um, and so I think, you know, that sort of feeling being a part of something is a, is a huge benefit to any company. Thank you, Arlene. Sorry, sorry to corner you with that uh, question. <laughs> uh, Daniela, remember in, your, uh, in our prep session, you talked about lookalike audiences. And I don't know if this is something you can share about because it's a nice tactic. Uh, yeah, of course. Yes, it's it's a nice tactic that we started to develop not too long ago, but it proved to be successful. And it's leading up to you know our renewed effort to work on the new developer platform. So our our story is you know we don't just build things for developers; we build with them, and it's always a combination of the Twitter API plus the creativity of developers. Uh, but sometimes, because we had such a fractured relationship with developers throughout the years, and we're literally just getting started again, uh, getting back to understanding what they've been up to, um, it's, sometimes it's difficult to understand exactly what is a good use case or a good app to surface. And so one of our tactics was, um, as we were launching endpoint after endpoint, as, you know, pretty much at a faster pace than ever before last year, uh, we also wanted to highlight some of the developers that excelled in that particular field or in the particular area where that endpoint would be relevant. And so our our um, way uh, of doing that would be to understand usage uh, in terms of both how many API calls were are made, which kind of tells success from one end, like a developer calling that API many times, great, shows usage, but are uh, their developers also using that. And so we combine that with uh, the number of uh, individual uh, users using that um, API on their side as well. And basically finding more developers like that uh, through data has proved very successful to understand what were the use cases we should invest more on, uh, what were the stories that were worth telling. Um, and so like through data, we discover fantastic use cases. Like uh, there's this one app called uh, Flocknet that basically is um, a LinkedIn for Twitter. It allows you to search on um, uh, your contact list and the list of uh, uh, other public lists uh, based on uh, people who authorize to do so. 
Uh, and uh, you can basically sort out contacts by job description, by what they have on their profile bio, and you can add them to a list. So if you're looking for like funding or if you're looking for uh, engineers, if you're starting a business and you want to get more uh, of um, uh, expertise, you can just get uh, to Flocknet and like search by profession. And uh, uh, you know that people on Twitter are very opinionated and they, they actually like to share their opinion at all. And, and so that's a good search engine for, uh, for new uh, business relationships right there. And we discovered that through data. And, and so uh, Flock, F-L-O-C-K dot network. So yeah, and that's one of the things that we discovered through, uh, through data. Um, so that helped our tactic of featuring at least one developer per product announcement, uh, which is something that was extremely well received by, uh, by developers themselves. I'm moving over to Chris. Yeah. Um, Chris, I think, again, from our prep session, you talked about how you love building whimsical product demos that are fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, from my developer background, I, I enjoyed building things in general. Um, it's always been a, I was actually kind of writing about this in, in a blog post that maybe I'll publish about how uh, writing code has always been not just kind of like the act of building something, but also felt like a bit of personal expression to me. And so there's this kind of like love for coding and then combining that with my product management background um, and getting a team together to, to work on, on something. And then was it six, almost six years ago now joining, joining Heroku, where there's this kind of very high bar for developer experience um, and some very, very talented people that I um, was fortunate enough to learn from and to, um, um, get expectations set from i i kind of thrived in that environment and loved loved working with a team to to build something kind of beautiful and polished and engaging and fun whether it's that it was that like um in-person events that heroku sponsored or or like dreamforce which is salesforce's big event every year um or virtual things um we created there's a um a github organization named fostive s-o-f-o-s-t-i-v-e we created it's a it's a uh, fostive standing for free and open source tools for incredible virtual events so it came up yeah last year we were like virtual events are just not not that satisfying how do we make them better and so we started working on some tools that event organizers could use to um, improve their events and launched it actually with cascadia js um, which is a javascript event in the Northwest, but it was virtual last year at the end of last year. So that's, I don't know, that's, that's been my, my tactic that I've been focused on or, or kind of know that I am able to do, to do pretty well. And I think we're about halfway just over our uh, panel here. A reminder for the audience, if you want to ask questions, there's a dedicated button. Uh, and I think it's just below the main stage. Otherwise, I'll get to ask my questions. <laughs> and I think we can move to the strategy topic now. And, uh, and I know we discussed this uh, very, very um, interesting topic, which has to do with growing versus joining a community. And I'm sure everyone has an opinion here. Who wants to go first? I'm happy to jump in. Um, the uh, This is super interesting to me because of my kind of like dual professional life over the past few years in this this world that is Heroku and this world that is Salesforce, the developer worlds. Um, Salesforce has been amazing at, at, at building um, uh, this kind of like thriving developer community. Um, and, and those that exist with, within it, um, 
are, are very well connected and love what they do and love kind of the connection to the company and, and, and um, the, the tools and the things they get to work on. Whereas Heroku has built a, I don't know, a community maybe uh, much more organically and, and, and not, not actively more passively just by creating products and tools that, that developers are um, more general web developers are more excited about or very excited about. And it was mostly hands-off. There, there was a lot of um, connection to the language communities uh, among within Heroku, connection to like the Ruby community. And so uh, the, the TLDR there is that like Heroku has kind of this very dispersed and maybe like less kind of tied to Heroku community members, whereas Salesforce has this very tight and very and, and very kind of like directly tied to the company community members. And so I'm trying to like figure out now what's the right balance of those two things? How do, how do we say grow the Salesforce developer community in a, in a meaningful and relevant way instead of just kind of focusing on nurturing and, and, and focusing on existing community members like Salesforce is super good at? Kind of how do, how do we inject some of the, the ethos or principles of Heroku and how they interacted with the community into, into Salesforce? And it's not an easy problem. I don't have any great answers. We're kind of figuring it out as we go with the with the group of people. But it's been a lot of fun and and a lot of challenging uh, or a lot of challenging conversations. We could probably use Ali to help us with the difficult conversations. So yeah, that's that's kind of the strategy that's been on my mind. Again, I don't have answers for you, but but it's a it's a super interesting thing that I think a lot of DevRel people need to think about. It's like, do we build a community from scratch that's like developed around this this one? product or company like Salesforce, or do we let a community kind of just grow kind of like Heroku did? Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is. And it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's never black or white. Ali, Daniela, do you have any solutions or thoughts? <laughs> I'm very much in a, a similar space, I think, as Chris, uh, although, you know, maybe less defined, you know, Okta has very much been kind of the Heroku model where our advocates are very embedded in their language communities. And so we've had this sort of very divert, you know, dispersed participation in communities providing, I think, the resources community by community. And we've started having a lot of conversations about, well, what does a community really mean? You know, do we build something that's a little more focused on Okta? Or do we want to look you know, at more investment in more communities outside, what does that look like? You know, do we change, you know, do you change focus on, on different communities as sort of different, uh, as they evolve or as your product evolves and changes, you know, and, and so we've been having a lot of conversations, same sort of thing, like do you build, build or join, you know, and, and if you're looking at moving into new spaces, what does that mean, right? Do, do you kind of barge into existing communities do you sort of slow roll into existing communities? Do you start your own? Um, and so I think that's I, that's kind of I think the fundamental challenge. You know, I think everybody wants you know our own community, um, but I think what that means varies greatly. I think a lot of it is what kind of product you have, what kind of community you already have, what your goals are, what your community needs, which I probably like is the most important piece. Because just being like, I want a community doesn't do anything for you if there's no desire amongst the developer groups that use your product or want to use your product or may use your product to, to you know, you, you, I think the key thing here is you can't force community, 
right? Like it has to, there has to be a need or a desire or, you know, something that brings that group together. And whether that's outside your, your control, quote unquote, or inside that, that is a, I think the fundamental thing is figuring out like where that need lives. I'm really interested actually to hear Daniela's take on this since I know probably doing the same thing of figuring all this out. Yeah. uh, It's, you you both had uh, I had so a different answer before uh, I heard you two, and now I feel like you made me think of one thing that I'm going to share my perspective and perspective of um, a Twitter. I think we actually almost have to join a community developers already built for ourselves, and I think Chris uh, the way Heroku like uh, my, one of my as a big background uh, I was developing in like historically PHP. And then this language Facebook created was called Hack that was like barely supported. Um, and I wanted to just, back in the days, try to uh, use Hack uh, and HHVM, which was the virtual machine for, uh, for Hack, into Heroku. And in that case, in the case of Heroku, for me as a, you know, back then as a Heroku developer, access to the community was basically embedded into the, the product, into the way the product was built. And Heroku had a thing called build packs in which you can basically create your own configuration and uh, you know, factor in your own uh, uh, programming language uh, and tools you know, to deploy into your Heroku instance. And it turns out that if you know, a language wasn't supported, then the community could step in and add support through build packs for these kind of things. And with that, you could you see, you know, become an influential member of the community because you were that prominent developer who would uh, uh, give people support for a specific stack. And I think that the same is happening with, uh, with our developer platform is definitely true for, uh, uh, for us, for, for Twitter. Developers has, have always, always stepped in to solve problems we couldn't solve or uh, problems we would never able to solve uh, because of our size, scale, because of our focus and, um, and so on and so forth. So we are very well aware that we sit on uh, an enormous amount of creativity to the extent of which like one of our objectives for the year is to earn creative energies from developers. So that's a strategy for us. And we want to drive the goal through a set of uh, initiatives that will uh, basically make us join the community that already exists. If you think of it, the word like, you know, the, the mute button was actually invented by developers or the hashtag was uh, invented by the community. Even the word tweet itself. Um, our first um, iOS app, was actually uh, a third-party client. Somebody built a mobile app on top of the Twitter API, and it was so good that Twitter ended up acquiring it. So there is a ton more that we know it's going to happen. Just yesterday, Kevin actually uh, was talking about uh, you know, the possibility of opening up new uh, parts of the platform, like fleets or spaces, because we know that developers are going to you know, solve for problems we could never foresee exist yet. And I think that's you know a ton of wealth that uh, naturally happens. So you there's, there's reason, there isn't really a question of should we join or should we grow. Like the community has already grown, and it's um, up to you to direct them to um, the things that they can build that will make the most sense and focus for the long term of both the community and the product. I think that that creativity is super important, and I think 
it doesn't happen very much because it's scary for the company. It's scary to like relinquish control to community members, to people outside your company, right? But it's so powerful if you can create the right bumpers or gui- guidelines um, uh, or gu- guidance to to and tools to to allow developers to to build things on top of your platform that are not just for themselves, but kind of extend the product in a way, right? That's it just seems. It's it's yes, really scary, but it can be so powerful um, if if a company can figure out how to do it. I want to give some time to the audience for questions, and we have five questions. And you can actually go to the um, app through the Q and A option and upvote any of the questions you want. So one of the most interesting here for me, which I upvoted, so I'll start with that. Is uh, I think it's a developer who's asking how. Can you? What's the best way of getting involved in DevRel as a developer? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, so, so uh, quick. I'll do. I'll, I'll try to be quick. Like the my background story was um, Heroku was my first DevRel job, my first thing, my first experience, and I applied out of the blue, uh, like on the job site. There was no networking. There was no like introduct soft or warm introductions. Um, that has never happened for me. Um, but somehow I got my foot in the door. And um, I think similar to what Ali said, like I, I have a generalist background and I think bringing that to this, this uh, new industry that is DevRel um, is helpful. So if you can be flexible to be able to do a lot of different things is important in DevRel because you're going to get a lot of different kind of demands from above pushed, pushed on you, especially um, from some people that don't know DevRel, leaders that don't know DevRel, leaders that do know DevRel. Um, uh, more tactically, I think like the thing to do to, to get into DevRel is just just start building stuff, pr- creating things, and sharing your your excitement for technologies or communities or you know bringing people together. Whatever whatever it is, um, it could be blog posts, it could be videos, it could be podcasts, it could be like create a room on Clubhouse, as Daniela was talking about the the new this new like audio format that's that's emerging um, beyond podcasts. Yeah, build stuff, write code, open source it, write blog posts create videos, apply to conferences, um, like put yourself in that uncomfortable position of, of presenting and learn how to be a presenter. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's my take, I guess. Thank yeah. you, Chris. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to add that um, you, like all this seems that you have to be an extrovert by nature. That's not true. So don't feel, I, I'm an introvert. So, and you know, I, I want to speak to all the introverts potentially out there not, not asking that question. Definitely, uh, absolutely um, build something. Just show that you're passionate and you care. Like passion and uh, empathy for solving something is uh, exactly what it takes. And maybe join hackathons, do something. If you can't speak uh, or you don't feel comfortable, uh, that's not a problem. Controversial, but true. Uh, your like the quality of the things you build and the use case and the way it's built actually can speak even more than that. Um, so don't worry about that. There's always like many other ways you can contribute, uh, but like join events or hackathons, write tutorials. Th- those are all things that work. And just ask to everyone if uh, they're hiring. If there's any opening, apply. If not, just reach out and uh, let let the uh, the people you know within the company guide you towards the right uh, approach. But I think what's needed for our developer relations is uh, passion, empathy, and be a fantastic, fantastic developer. 
Yeah, plus, I plus one. I totally agree with, with Chris and Daniela. It's I think you know so much. There was a view for I think a long time that you know dev advocacy or evangelism or devrel was like people standing on a stage and speaking, and that's you know I think the last year in particular has really taught us that that's not actually the core. And so I think it's, I think Chris said it perfectly and until I, Danielle, I followed it up too. Like it's share your experience, share your passion, share your knowledge. Like I think the core of this is sharing and it's also sharing inward. You know, that's a function I think that gets glossed over a lot in DevRel is that it's also being able to provide input back into your team, you know, engineering teams, product about like the needs that you're seeing in your community or, or even yourself or your team, like, that's, that's an, a, a, a core piece that's incredibly valuable. You know, so, but I think it's the sharing piece is sort of the core of, of DevRel. Um, we have time for just one more question. We're now eating into the break, literally, but we have quite a few questions. Uh, the one that's the most popular right now is the one from Larry McDonough at VMware, who's asking, how important is consistency of developer experience across your different product lines, like API consistency, doc consistency samples, and how can you enforce that? Who has an, a view on that? Painful one. Um, it's crucial. Uh, we come from a place where our API is even as like response fields are spelled differently. Like our, you know, when you like a tweet, now you like a tweet, but in the past was called uh, um, favorite. It was a, a star, not a heart. And so, you know, that was 2011. The API hasn't changed that. And we had different teams across the globe working on that. And the response field was one spelled favorites with the American spelling, American English. And then the other one was with the British English spelling. And that was confusing. Uh, it added a ton of complexity for developers to understand which you know, API would return what field and create extra code that was unnecessary. And it created you know, uh, roadblocks down the way, like how do you explain that in the docs? So it's extremely important. And the way to enforce that consistency, it's not just you know, from one side, it has to come from uh, um, definitely a central piece. So the way you organize the, um, uh, the product development and maybe teams as well has to uh, change. So it's an organi organizational change. You have a central repository for uh, rules, how things should be written, designed and deployed. And then you have a central voice uh, so even if you have a, you know, a spread out uh, developer relations team with a technical writer and a developer advocate and a partner engineer that follows the product launch closely, um, there needs to be a central unified uh, point of review where all the voice is unified and um, also like strict guidelines. If somebody notices that uh, uh, a principle or a field is in violation of what's already out there, it needs to, need to go back to the drawing boards and fixed. That's a bug. Um, so that, that's my uh, perspective from what we've seen uh, in, uh, the, in the past years. I'm very conscious of time. We have one more minute and we have one question that seems to be popular here, which is what would you say, uh, no, that's not the one, how do you deal with a multitude of platforms? The community lives in a growing number of places. How do you deal with that challenge? I think that must be a developer question. I would say <laughs> it's just... You know, you have to look at your time, the time you have in the day and the time you're, the number of people on your team, and you have to ruthless, ruthlessly prioritize and focus on 
what you can do instead of trying to take on everything or every different platform or every different place your developers live. Um, uh, you'll just water down your effort and it, and it won't be effective or useful or even fun for you as you engage with them. So it kind of sucks, but I think that's, that's the way you have to approach it. I, I also think, um, you know, one of the things in terms of when we're talking before about community and sort of participation, I think being able to essentially find community members who want to be and are capable of being representatives can is a great thing here where you, you'll net there's no way anybody will ever hire enough folks in DevRel to cover all the places where developers are. And so I think you know one key thing is if you have folks who are, you know, I think you know champions or ambassadors or various other things. And I've built programs at various, you know, at Mozilla and we're thinking here at Okta. Um, about how how do you empower members of your community to represent in their communities? And I think that's another kind of core. And you see a lot of, you know, a lot of companies have programs where you have ambassador or champion programs where, you know, and so I think that's like, how do you effectively empower people outside of your own organization is, is key because you'll never, you'll never be everywhere. Um, never be anywhere you want to be or, or where people have interest in your product or what you offer. So figuring out how you can sort of exchange that value, I think is really important. You know, that, that being empowering versus controlling, I think is a key, key piece of that. That can, that can also help you get into DevRel too, or help community members who want to get into DevRel, right? Yeah. Too. So that there's kind of like a virtuous cycle there. So I see Mosula's uh, window just popped up, which means we're eating into her window. So I'd like to thank everyone here. I wish we had more time. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Daniela. Thank you, Chris, for making it to the panelists' talk. And we still have a few questions which are unanswered. We can do the responses over Twitter, like Chris suggested. The handle is slash data HQ. So we'll be doing these after the event and we also have a networking session just after Costas's talk which is in about I think 20 minutes or so give or take we can also uh, answer questions there so everyone thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations you can listen to all episodes find free resources and the latest news at devrelex.com and you can subscribe to our bite-sized bi-weekly digest or follow us on Twitter at slashdatahq for regular, regular updates it's been great having you thank you very much for joining us